You're listening to the fifth episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. Be forewarned, a lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going wrong, but it is not intended as an attack on faith. It's about depression, too. If trigger warnings lowered levels of emotional upset, I'd include one, but they don't. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my adolescent life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased and unsought-for concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 5, Woman. The next song was me trying to get a handle on the concept of romance, so to speak. Romance also seemed like a blade with no handle. I was a teenager who knew I was a boy and knew I liked girls, so that much was simple. Nothing else was. I was raised to not fool around with girls at school and to limit my romantic efforts to the Plymouth Brethren dating pool, which, at least until the division that happened once I was about a year out of my teens, was significant. Thing is, girls at school were kind of easier. They might be interested, they might not, it was generally hard to tell. I think what you were supposed to do was go to parties where people were reportedly experimenting with alcohol poisoning, pot, acid, and shrooms, and walk that fine line between being too out of it for it to really count as anything, let alone anything consensual, and being too sober to get admitted to that experimental arena at all. The kids I went to school with seemed to explore sex and romance using substance abuse as their way in, as part of their introduction to it. All that seemed scary, irresponsible, and temporary to me. I wasn't raised to settle for brief trysts. I was supposed to wait until marriage to do anything sexual, and like most brethren lads, I therefore was quite open to the idea of an early marriage. Long engagements were frowned upon in our circles. If two people were very much in love, and they remained engaged for years, they were no doubt knowing the crap out of one another on the regular in the biblical sense. And brethren girls were kind of harder. They gave much, much less sign of interest in guys they liked, even than their non-brethren counterparts did. They had, of course, much higher standards to try to live up to if they wished to be considered nice girls rather than dirty ones. As it was, men like my father would avoid being alone in a house, let alone a room, with any woman but their wives and daughters. There were married men in the Plymouth Brethren who were definitely having their way with other people's wives and daughters. It was harder still for the young girls if they were pretty. My aunts could tell you immediately. If you gave them a name, they could tell you if she was nice or not. Some girls were definitely not a nice girl girls, which meant that they really had no marriage potential in the Plymouth Brethren. I suppose an evolutionary biologist might say this had something to do with the men of tribes in our ancient past needing to know that all of their kids were really their kids. Nice girls might give you that. Brethren girls were supposed to be wholesomely enticing, without any obvious use of much makeup or jewelry, hair dye or clothes that showed cleavage or legs above the knee or were at all thin or tight. Basically, they had to convince a potential husband that they had great genetic material without using almost any of the aesthetic tricks besides orthodontistry. My sister's orthodontist was Brethren. Brethren girls wore a lot of sneakers, jean skirts, and sweatshirts. If you went swimming together, as we often did, that was your only real chance to get any idea of the general builds of the girls you were looking at as potential girlfriends and spouses. For this reason, some Brethren youth camps that were old school had separate swimming areas for teenage boys and teenage girls. Some camps even outlawed the wearing of shorts for either sex while there. Looking at you, Lawson Pines. That wasn't typical, though. 
Brethren guys swam in shorts-style swimming trunks, not speedos, and brethren girls wore modest one-piece suits with cover-ups or t-shirts and shorts over top when they weren't actually in the water. Some girls at school showed that they were trying to figure me out, which apparently isn't easy. I'm so secretive and unforthcoming about personal stuff, I guess. Some of them I found interesting, but many I didn't. In either case, I had no idea how to connect to them. I wouldn't be asking them out to hockey games, concerts, the movies, school dances, or parties, nor even going to those things myself. They wouldn't be coming to Bible conferences, brethren youth camps on Sunday morning, nor yet Sunday afternoon, nor Sunday evening. It was hard to cross those lines. A very few brethren guys got worldly girls to come into brethren circles, to come out to church, cover their head, wear skirts, and all the rest of it. Some even ended up marrying girls of this kind. And some brethren girls fooled around with non-brethren guys and got kicked out of the brethren for that, and then got back in once they'd sat in the back row in shame Sunday morning for a month or two. I'm not aware of any of them marrying these guys. Normally, if a brethren girl was dating a non-brethren guy, she and the brethren were in the middle of parting ways permanently. Young men, many of whom soon proved extremely unqualified to hold forth on the subject of male-female relationships, were absolutely filled with theory and advice about what women wanted and how to get them to want it from you. Mostly they advocated a lot of lying and not getting caught, of course, or slightly negative dominant behavior to mask the fawning adoration that is so deeply natural to males around women who really do it for them, but which adulation and attention frightens most women. Women needed that negging, they said, felt reassured by a man who takes the wheel. All this advice tended to either be aimed at the body or the spirit, so to speak. Some guys were giving advice simply about how to make a girl theoretically more open to your sexual advances. Other guys were theorizing about biblical imagery surrounding marriage and children and families. You could imagine which type of guy I was trying to be. The former guys didn't tend to have much to back up their theories about sex, while there was no real way to test the workability of the latter biblical guys' ideas either, the Bible being the only measure for the orthodoxy of their wisdom. And brethren theology seldom rises above the it-just-makes-sense level of scholarship. I have a theory, so absolutely cannot conceive of there being any other valid theories. I knew about women only theoretically and mainly through talking to other guys about them, but I still decided to put a glowing vision of male-female relationships into a poem, which became this song. It spoke of how mystical and mysterious and lofty and glowing women seemed to a young guy. Just as much of our worship of God seemed to be kind of borrowed from the pages of medieval romance, my view of romancing women seemed likewise borrowed from church worship stuff. The two were easily blurred. It didn't help that the Bible used imagery moving in both directions. We, the Lord's people, the Church of Christ, were also going to be Christ's bride after the rapture. We would all be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, forming the bride herself, the Bible said. In turn, the Bible spoke of two, a man and a woman, of course, becoming one, and this being an image or symbol or lesson waiting to be learned about Christ and the church. This all sounded very big and mysterious. I was pretty interested in making all of this theory a lived reality, but that really wasn't working out. The girls at school often didn't really know what they wanted or wanted some experimental sex, which I certainly wasn't going to sacrifice my place in the Brethren movement and a future there with wife, family, and a teaching role in the Bible studies to pursue. Many of these things are spoken of openly in our schools today. Many of them 
are discussed openly in classes. We find students in school today being given instruction on how to avoid the consequences of sinful practices. But in every case that I have heard of, the reference is always to escaping the consequences, the diminishing degree of shame in the sight of men without any thought as to the fact that it is God with whom we have to do. Schoolgirls mostly seemed less to want any actual guys anyway, as they just wanted guys in general to want and not have them. The girls at church often didn't know what they wanted either, and were even more messed up about their bodies and sexuality than the ones at school, as messed up as their parents could possibly arrange it often seemed. Many brethren girls ended up wanting either to delay relationships and kids until their 30s, or to meet guys who were as unbrethren as possible. Who can blame them? For one thing, the youth leaders, who were just about to leave to form the Brethren Light group, had been determined to dig up proof that many of the strictest men in the strictest assemblies in our Brethren movement globally might be lifelong position-abusing child molesters to a man. At a couple of youth camps I attended, they divided us up into a teenage girls meeting and a separate teenage boys meeting. They invited the girls at their meeting to privately come forward and talk to someone at the end, not as an altar call to accept Jesus, but to accuse their brothers, dads, uncles, and youth group leaders of molesting them or some other person that they'd maybe heard rumors about. At our boys' meeting, it was quite different. They invited us to privately come forward and talk to someone at the end to confess if we were ourselves molesters. Everyone knows it's impossible for male children to get molested or for female people to molest children in any way. Needless to say, trying to chat up the brethren girls at Barakel camp that week was now sullied over by a greasy film of awkwardness and shame. And if the numbers of girls and guys who came forward at those meetings was any indication, our Christian movement had a pedophile and incest problem, a problem that never got mentioned once the modernizers and young people all left, a problem they seemed sure lay with their traditionalist opposite numbers. For me, with girls at school, it was like my brethrenness made me seem to them like a monk living in a mountain monastery or some kind of asexual alien from the unfashionable arm of the Crab Nebula. Many girls simply didn't believe in the existence of straight men who could say no to sex and who therefore couldn't be as easily manipulated with it. That would have been science fiction. With girls, they taught us, no means no. My dad taught me that girls had to say no because guys can't. Well, I have news. But as far as conventional wisdom was concerned, with guys, no meant he was gay or unable to accept real beauty, having had his perception of it twisted by the surgically enhanced anorexics in all the television shows and movies we weren't watching or in the magazines we hadn't found in a field somewhere. A guy who didn't pursue it clearly didn't want it. He clearly had something wrong with him. Many out-of-town brethren girls at huge Bible conferences and youth group events seemed to like the looks of me enough, but once they met me, they could sense the misery and darkness, the depth and complexity, the doubts about and criticisms of the brethren movement, and a whole bucket load of things they simply didn't want to deal with. At all. 
the women of my generation seemed to mostly end up marrying very simple guys who had little or nothing to say and who signed off on their preferences as to bathroom colors and dietary choices and who generally followed them uncomplainingly around Ikea and carried groceries and heavy things for them. Quiet, meek, mild, dutiful types. Clark Kent in the streets, Superman in the sheets. Earners. Deep didn't seem to be sexy at school or church. Dark either. There was a game going on that everyone, brethren or otherwise, agreed that I wasn't playing properly. And rule one of the game is that it must be played even though somehow no one really knew the rules. Oh, there were guys who claimed to and girls who wanted nothing much to do with them. Two women even wrote a book called The Rules, which made a lot of people angry and made even more people buy it. In response, men started writing books too, their own books about how to connect with the opposite sex by gaming them. All agreed that playing games was required. This always annoyed me, and I think still does. I don't like games. After a long life, mainly of helping people pick up the pieces after failed relationships or work through their feelings while preparing to parachute out of them, all I know about the game is this. It seems to have something or other to do with men being bad at hints and women communicating mainly in those, with women being better at putting things into words and insisting on a man who doesn't need or like words to use his words. It also seems to be vaguely about men waiting patiently until those moments when they are informed or need to guess that now is one of those special times when they need to take the wheel for a bit, just for a bit. A brother and woman, wearing pants at the time, told me that in a relationship with her, a man needed to wear the pants. I noted that she was never able to let anyone else but her drive her car for even a moment. It wasn't like I was looking for anyone too difficult to find, just a girl who was fairly beautiful and also very smart and into art and poetry, books and music, one who was into God but was a skeptic about our church, one who was into knowing stuff and getting an education but not into students' council and school committees, one who believed there were many things wrong with the world but not one who believed she could fix it with her charity work, signs, slogans, wristbands, bumper stickers, and t-shirts, one who hated sports and athletes and didn't find them at all attractive or interesting. Mainly, I wanted someone who needed me to be more rather than less, like the person I was uncontrollably organically growing into. I cannot express to you how incredibly hot brethren and girls seemed to me if they got up at a youth camp and sang a song, like in this case, at Red Pine Camp in Ontario in 1989. <laughs> I think my generation had fewer kids than the ones before, with the middle class having the fewest of all. Many middle class women waiting until education and career were in place before attempting kids and finding then that it was difficult or even impossible to have more than one or two if that. When I wrote the lyric, I had a mystical union in mind, a spinning, celestial thing designed by Escher with the woman taking up residence in the man's heart and the man in turn swimming in the sea of the woman and moving into her heart to live and breathe and play Nintendo. I wanted the song to have some playful, suggestive 70s funk, and also some Pink Floyd cosmicness to it. Never felt like I quite nailed that. I'm not terribly funky. To begin with, I had a winning combination in teenage recording engineer Mike playing keyboard for me. A Wurlitzer, I think. with his bandmate, Adam Fogo, on Funky, Funky Bass. 
But the drummer I had to begin with, and then the drummer I replaced the drums with, didn't really mesh with Mike and Adam's vibe, though both were able to play quite fancy show-off drum parts. So, borrowing some hi-hats from the music room at the school, I had to kind of fake up some very simple drums myself. I just play a single drum at a time, very carefully and very simply, and then mix them together like I played the whole kid all at once. I attempted some theremin on a cheap theremin I'd picked up from eBay years back. More out-of-shape trumpet, dimly remembered from high school. I saw what would happen if you put a distorted rhythm guitar through a wah pedal. adjusted the same gear differently to try for some 70s waka waka percussive guitar. I then adjusted the same gear in an attempt to nod in the direction of the Fat Albert theme song from Saturday morning cartoons in the 1970s. I misacquired televangelist Paul Washer opining as to some cherry-picked parts of the Bible, declaring earnestly that one of said parts is to be understood solely as a commandment to be obeyed and absolutely not as poetry. That's not poetry! It's not poetry! I asked my sister to sing like Claire Tory on Dark Side of the Moon, but what she did sounded much more like Tori Amos, which was a pleasant surprise. My sister has also never really been a soul sister, so 90s Lilith Fair Fair was more her speed. There were clicks and audio defects in the recording of her voice from back in the day, so I kept those and added more into the song to match it. I got Troy to make spacey beeping sounds with his extensive guitar gear. The hardest part for me with tracks like this is jamming my songs full to overflowing with random, odd things I impulsively wanted to put in there on a whim at some point, and then now being stuck making all of these sounds work together and not just be annoying and discordant and random. Will it blend? That is the question. I spent a fair bit of time trying to make this sound less like Pink Floyd than it was trying to.
Oh, baby, baby.